Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman. I'm joined by Ronan Reschsteiner of Oliver Wyman, where he's Global Head of Oil and Gas, Mining and Chemicals. Roland, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I guess we'll pick up where we left off. We're talking about energy transition. Um, I guess we've discussed how, you know, what it is, you know, this this transition from um, higher, you know, I guess two higher return carbons, moving from molecules to to electrons. Um, we've got a period of using transition fuels, and ultimately, uh, 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 ending with a, a either total or much higher use of renewables. And again, I think, as I mentioned in the last podcast, it's fascinating in that this is one of those. Um, uh, we can predict, we, we know what the, the end result is going to look like. What we can't predict is necessarily how long it's going to take to get there. And the, the estimates vary wildly, but also the path at which we're going to get there as an as a, um, economy, but also as individual organizations. Obviously, energy transition has the biggest impact on current producers of hydrocarbons, oil and gas producers. And it seems to me that, um, and we, you know, I think it's bearing out that there are some organizations out there who are listening and embracing, and there are other organizations and individuals for whom you know, um, it's it, attempting to ignore at, at best and, and I guess downplaying at, at worst. But to me, it seems like this is a huge source of opportunity for all organizations in the commodities markets and something I'm personally quite passionate about. What is the outlook for producers' best guess right now? Right now? Yeah, absolutely. But I think, Paul, I would like to quickly comment on the point you made that there's some parts of the communities embracing energy transition and some are actually pushing back. And I'll give you a few thoughts um, on this because, you know, obviously, if you look at the growth rate in oil trading, in gross margin done in oil trading from 18 to 19, that was 45% from 2018 to 2019. It was a massive growth because market structures were great, because uh, obviously volatility was there. And if you think about that, it's obviously very difficult to argue why actually hydrocarbons would not actually provide a proper business model going forward. I think secondly, there is a, there is a um, not a complacency, but certainly we all tend to kind of our, to kind of remain in our comfort zones. And you can see that very much when you, for instance, look at all demand forecasts in the um, during the COVID crisis. Oil demand forecasts during the COVID crisis were always overly bullish. So you look at IEA, you look at OPEC, you look at other organizations that forecast oil demand, um, products demand over the next two, three years. And week by week, they actually lower their forecasts, both for 2020 and 2021 because they are over, over bullish, over optimistic in the beginning. And that is the nature of being in the business that you obviously always hope for the best. I mean, when I look at our forecast that we did, which so far uh, look pretty much in line with what's happening is, we could even argue that we might have reached peak demand in 2019, which would be actually about 10, 12, 13 years earlier than we have originally anticipated in a pre-COVID world. So I think there is change out there, but it is sometimes hard to accept it. Now, when you see, when you hear then extreme announcements, then obviously there's a lot of challenge around how do you actually make it happen. But by no, by no doubt, they will actually achieve it over time, but it will, it's obviously a time of transition. And I think 
when you when you talk to a lot of the participants in the markets, whilst the money is made in the carbon world, actually the CEO's focus is around what is next, what do we do have to do now to actually profit from the energy transition. And I think that's the same whether you're a trader and whether you're a producer. Because obviously the large producers are hit extremely hard because their business models are completely up for question. Now, when you think about some of the largest players and some of the most innovative players when it comes to the energy transition, they make very clear statements around scope one, two, three, net zero in 2050, which is a massive undertaking. And I think in order to get there, they will have to continue to invest into carbon, but at the same time, actually manage the portfolio to move away into a, a carbon zero world. And that in itself is a significant challenge for management and also for the entire team because everybody needs to understand, follow, embrace that change. And I think that is actually quite significant here. Mm, there is, you know, you've got to manage that change. That's a really challenging, as you, you know, it's a huge operation. What are the commercial responses available right now for energy producers, oil and gas producers? to, I guess, A, capture, you know, it has been a couple of good years. Um, but yeah, what are the commercial responses available to them? So I think the most important element is actually once you have defined where you want to be, that you then have a very proactive portfolio management in place. Because you will have to transform your business away from a pure upstream and downstream um, oil value chain or gas value chain investment company where you improve and do better what you did before, you have to switch towards, in addition to this, you obviously will massively participate in the renewables and not only in operating them, much more in developing them because that's where the margin is. And then on top of this, it's all about technology as well. So you will have to participate not only in technology development, but also in participating in technology ventures. And these three sectors have very different clock speeds and have very different investment requirements. So having a very active portfolio management around how do you allocate your capital? How do you make sure that you basically keep your long-term objective in mind in terms of sustainability and profitability, but you are still going quarter by quarter, year by year on that journey in a productive way, um, that is kind of, I think, the, the, mass, the, the most important challenge, but also the biggest opportunity. Because when you think of different type of investments, you know, you have the ability to also shape your balance sheet accordingly, to use any kind of um, uh, green markets, be that through green bonds and other areas, and therefore shape actually that portfolio of investment in a way that it actually fits both causes, profitability as well as sustainability. Hmm. Uh, I guess at its root, though, your mo molecule that you currently produce and have invested in, and lots of your financing is based on, is going to be increasingly worth less. Um, how do organizations tackle that? No, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, even more than if you think, Paul, that demand will continue to shrink. The molecule itself will become will become increasingly difficult to basically um, position in the market. Therefore, I think what we expect to happen is that pure marketing B two B sales schemes will increasingly come under pressure because, as you say correctly, the value is 
less and less in the molecule. And therefore, I think the ability to participate in trading markets and therefore being able to um, you know, participate in dislocations, participate in, in different um, developments in different parts of the world, blending capabilities, etc., will become increasingly important. And that's actually also a trend that we see across the board. So, and that's not only in, um, in oil, it's actually across all commodities that, and you know, that goes from, from oil to metals to, um, steel to agricultural. Whoever is actually, whoever is actually producing commodities these days is now thinking about how how can we participate in trading markets? And that does not necessarily mean that you build up a huge trading house, because we all know that is kind of quite an undertaking. But what it means is actually that you increase the sophistication in how you understand markets, how you your ability to structure, to structure your contracts, to actually maybe even offer risk management solutions to your customers, and in the end, basically increase the margin that you make on the back of your um, trading activities or sophisticated marketing activities in the market. So you can make money essentially off providing the service like the trading houses do. Um, also, you know, there's opportunity in the volatility itself, but a huge part of it, and, and this is me, I guess, listening to, to you in, in some of your publications is also being able to um, anticipate markets perhaps better because you're that much closer to the customers. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's actually very interesting because we normally discuss this specifically along um, uh, predictive analytics. Um, but I think what we have certainly seen with all our clients that develop trading capabilities is that the access to the customers, the proximity to the customer in terms of even the type of conversations, the understanding of customer needs, and ultimately, the understanding of market developments is just significantly increased. And that changes the nature of how you operate the business. Because in that moment, when you build up these capabilities and you, you change the nature of the discussion um, towards more a market-driven conversation, that is also when you ultimately move away from basically producing a commodity and selling it, and you move more towards thinking about what is what the customer needs at what point in time, in what shape or form, in what kind of um, uh, risk management um, position, and then provide what the customer needs in a way that you actually can uh, monetize the optionality behind. Mm, which also might get you closer to some of the opportunity around what we discussed in the last podcast about is there an opportunity to start branding commodities based on origin sustainability and so forth if you do understand how close to your customer you can do those kind of things absolutely i think certainly for the branding side on the one side but then on the other side and and, and we've seen these kind of things happening not around sustainability but in general around um, market creations for instance in um, you know iron ore blends um, that developed over the years but i think um, it also helps you then to actually much sooner anticipate what might be actually the change that your customers based on the energy transition, what might be changing demands at customers and therefore help you also to think about what are the what is the portfolio that you want to build up as a trader to participate in it. But I think and, and I and I guess you know and I guess it's even the same for producers. Uh, I mean if you look out into the markets, I mean 
you look at the mining houses, the mining houses are certainly thinking about how can they substitute some of their commodities that might have less demand in the future with new commodities. And where does this discussion come from? This discussion comes certainly from the marketing and trading side, where you have conversations with your customers, understand how they how their demand is changing, and that ultimately finds its way into group strategy. Yeah, and it's a trend that not only are we seeing right now as as, as my firm, um, you know, supporting some of these build outs, it's a trend that's actually been there for a while. And, you know, you and I discussed about, um, you know, off air about um, some of the, the coal mining organizations who managed some of this transition better, you know, t a decade ago, because they had these kinds of um, marketing and trading or value optimization platforms. Um, and then I guess it's brought into stark relief as we speak, when you look at the first half results from the oil producers, you know, it's, I won't mention names, but it's very clear to see which organizations had sophisticated marketing and trading operations and which ones didn't. And there's a stark contrast in performance. So is the culmination of this, do you see over the next few years, all energy producers building these platforms or, or if not being bought and merged into organizations that do have these types of platforms? I think for sure um, you see that development and you can already see it now happening. Um, when I look into our client base, there's a lot of producers that actually um, start building trading capability, build, start building structuring capabilities, exactly for the reasons that we were just discussing. And, and I don't necessarily believe that as a pure producer, you can prevail, except if you have a very strong linkage to a trading entity where you know where either you got a joint venture or you got a shared book or you got some way of participate in that market but even if you have that that will not give you the close access to the customer and the understanding of the customer than when you build it up yourself there's a couple of headwinds i, I guess one has been historically at least for public organizations trading and marketing groups have not necessarily been in much the same way as having a downstream you know, valued by shareholders. Is there an increasing understanding of, of their importance within the investor community? It's a difficult one when you look at multiples. It's always been obviously that um, most analysts would not necessarily put a large multiple on the return or on the EBIT that's being produced from the trading organization. But what's becoming increasingly clear is that the ones that have sophisticated asset-backed uh, trading activities, that those are actually pretty stable and are also actually a pretty good hedge against um, uh, market downturns. So market downturns normally are uh, linked with a lot of volatility, and that is obviously something that then the trading entities can actually exploit. And you've seen that again over the last six months. So I guess I guess there will be some change to this, but in addition. At the end, you know, at the end, I think there is a margin opportunity that you can develop on top of your on top of your um, commodity. And I think what's so important is it is not about you know going to the to trying to get the hundred percent um, additional margin from trading on each molecule that you produce. Um, it is actually it is actually around thinking through. Where do you get actually the best return on capital, the best return on risk based on your risk appetite and your capital availability? And that might mean that you have a very small organization only and capture maybe 
of the additional margin instead of trying to get to 80 or 100%, which will immediately drive capital risk and, um, and uh, human capital demand significantly up. Yeah, not everyone needs to build an entire, effectively a trading house within their organization, and, and neither should they. As you, as you say, like these are, there are degrees of approach. And that's what we're seeing as well. You know, you're, the, the, I don't think we're, any of us are seeing a demand to, to build a huge proprietary trading desk. It's more actually about building out some capability to provide those, those elements you discussed, capturing margin, getting closer to customers, better being able to risk manage um, overall. The, all of this, so these commercial responses, whether it's the trading houses we discussed in the last episode, bolting on or, or including new, new commodities in their portfolio, but especially, I guess, for producers, whether they are miners, um, even on the ags world, um, but certainly in, in oil and gas, building out more sophisticated value chain optimization. Um, it seems like, obviously, in order to enable those things to happen, they need to be underpinned by what, frankly, would necessitate, I guess, a change in operating model as well. Um, is that something you're seeing out there? Yeah, absolutely. Um and I think it's it's really the operating model um, from the front to the back. Um, when you I, we t- we talked about portfolio management, so the agility in short term versus long term capital allocation, I think that's that is one which is going to be key because you will have to be um, you will have to have the ability to participate on the one side in very short term available opportunities or even firms that you want to acquire. And on the other side, you have to be able to actually um, have sustained investments into longer-term plays. Um, and to compare and contrast those different opportunities, I think that is going to be key. I think then it, a little bit more micro, you have to have a superior ability in pricing and structuring. I think that is becoming increasingly key, the ability to really understand where's the value for the customer Where's the value for yourself and how can you optimize that? And then, as we've said before, the origination capability, um, whether this is, um, you know, human-based origination, whether this is context-based origination, or whether this is, in the end, origination linked to um, digital applications that you're using um, to act to, you know, to gain new customers. That is going to be that's customer identification. Is, is, yeah, yeah, customer identification, acquisition, acquisition, exactly. Because you, you need to be able to offer, depending on the size of the customer, on their needs, on their sophistication, a, the ability to interact with them. That might be human to human, that might be digital, but I think that is going to be key because having this, having a larger amount of shorts, a larger amount of customers, that is what actually will create the basically the optionality within your system going. I think then that all supported obviously with um, predictive analytics. I think you know having better better understanding of supply and demand in certain parts of the markets. I think that's going to be absolutely key going forward. And basically, all large players are investing significantly into that. Um, but also, there's a lot of a lot of uh, suppliers out there. There's um, there's, um, I mean, we discussed this before. There's about five, six hundred um, startups that are currently working in the commodity trading space, um, trying to to offer different type of solutions. And as always with startups, some might not make sense, some might actually not run, but there will always be 
some that will really work and, and kind of having the dialogue, understanding what they do and seeing where you might actually partner up instead of developing something on your own. I think that's going to be key. That's a stat that fascinated me. Can you, is there any way you could attempt to kind of categorize the activities of these startups? So, that, you know, what are they, what are the different buckets or classes of startups attempting to do? Yeah, I think, I think there's multiple, there's multiple clusters there. There's certainly, you know, one cluster is all around mid back office efficiency around blockchain, around all type of kind of solutions on that front. Then I think there's a huge amount there that is trying to actually build, I would say, predictive analytics for mass markets. So instead of completely um, proprietary solutions, it's a lot about kind of, you know, um, solutions that give you a certain capability to develop, to develop predictive analytics, but not obviously to the ultimate edge that you might actually get to if you do it on your own, which um, some of the larger players are doing, but still probably helpful for parts of what you do. I think there's a lot in logistics, whether this is about, you know, marine operations, whether this is around um, domestic logistics. Um, and then ultimately, there's certainly also increasingly opportunities when you just think about, you know, any type of systems that you're using. Because if you think, if you compare like today's tech stacks that are available, where you can very simply build CTRM um, systems fit for purpose for what you're doing, um, instead of buying it off the shelf and actually trying to either build your company around it or actually um, adjusting it that it works for your company over nine or 12 months, that has changed completely. And those are all opportunities which are out there, which I believe there will be a lot of areas that can be actually of great benefit if you pick and choose the right ones. Just staying on CTRMs, um, it seems like a growing trend there is actually because costs have come down um, and because actually in reality, the kind of off-the-shelf versions have been, have you know, some of them have had challenges to integrate into large organizations or you're not actually using much of the functionality i think we see in a feeling a, a growing trend of organizations just wanting to build their own platforms and and, and underpinnings yeah we had uh oliver wyman we just built recently for um one of the largest uh producers we built a ctrm fit for purpose for them and um after six months the first uh, commodities were live and um, and now they basically continue to build it out. And after nine months, they had already three different commodity streams live on the system, absolutely delivering kind of all type of information that's required from deal capture all the way down to uh, financial reporting, risk reporting, etc. It is that simple these days to actually do it if you basically have the ability to code in, let's say, a Python tech stack and on the other side, the understanding of the markets. And if you think about that, um, that is completely open architecture. So as your business is changing, you just change it. And it takes, you know, it takes a few days or a few hours to adapt the screen, to adapt any kind of reporting, which historically always has been quite a long shot. Yeah, it would be giving its own project name and probably take a couple of years to, to, <laughs> yeah. to implement. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, that is, that's just such a fundamental radical change, you know, talking about delivering you know, a bespoke CTRM, which in a, in a few months as opposed to years, um, that is open architecture that can, you know, it, again, I think it's, it points to 
you know, the digitization really itself just being one of the lowering cost, increased sophistication and great bigger availability of technological tools that companies can take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as we, as we discussed before, I think there's a really kind of two areas of opportunity here. The one is like this example shows kind of effectiveness and efficiency front to back in operations. And um, the other opportunity is really around predictive analytics, where I'm, where I'm very much convinced of, because I've seen models that really work well, and that create quite significant um, opportunity. So you've got, so I'm, I'm, I'm now translating this into, I guess, talent. So you've got this, you, you know, you're going to get closer to the customer. So you are going to have organizations, you know, the energy transition will not reduce, but will increase the need for individuals who can lead origination, um, you know, and, and part of that being deploying the tools and taking the data that's available to them now. Um, so you've got origination there. You've got obviously still the, the trading community, but probably uh, less supported by um, physical oper you know, operations people, but more supported by um, predictive analytics and obviously all the people that need to come in and help build those models. You've got this, I guess, I assume, um, with, with regards to things like CTRMs, you're more likely to have your built your own and have your own experts in-house that enable you to tackle day-to-day -day challenges. Um, and then I guess you've got this overall, uh, this would come, I think, from obviously the CFO side. I think you know, this, there are lots of opportunities to reduce cost as well. Does that sound like that, I guess, that some of the talent mix you're going to see in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Paul. And I think, you know, when you think about the, the type of individuals and the type of capabilities that um, trading organizations now look for, it's actually pretty much along these lines and specifically around the interfaces of some of these areas. So I'll give you an example. One of the biggest challenge um, commodity trading organizations face when they move into predictive analytics is actually orchestrating a dialogue between a trader and a data scientist. Because the, the, the trader asks, what is it what you can do for me? And the data scientists asks, what it is what you want me to do for you? That is a dialogue that doesn't go well. So basically, orchestrating that interface between the trader and the data scientists, that both sides understand what's possible and what's meaningful, that is actually key. And as we see that develop, for sure, Years down the road, you will see a blend of these capabilities in one individual. And once that happens, once that happens, obviously, then you see, will see a rapid change in also the adoption of these capabilities. The other area where you see, um, where you see that kind of new development in terms of capability is, again, when it comes to um, the overall digital community, because IT communities in commodity trading firms often somehow live a life on their own, at least that is what probably some of the traders would tell you. Um, but these organizations in the future have to be really kind of digital delivery organizations that actually on the one side have the capability to kind of support, you know, for instance, the delivery of a CTRM or the delivery of any kind of analytics models. But at the same time, they always have to understand the focus needs to be around what it is what the front office or what it is what the mid and back office needs to actually make it to make it um, 
as most impactful as possible. So I think we will see much more the requirements of kind of a blend of capabilities or at least an openness and an understanding of different parts of the business. You know, commensurate to that is leaders who also value, embrace and can thread through their organization that digital expertise and the, you know, the data itself. Absolutely. I think, but but I think, you know, there's also another element which is quite important. So I think, you know, historically we spoke of front office, middle office, back office, which already had a bit of kind of a weighting in it. And I think uh, going forward, you will see much more, you will see much more um, a, some more equilibrium in terms of kind of the capabilities and the abilities and the way how these offices will interact because it's going to be so important to actually have that delivery capability front to back, because only the integrated machine will actually give you the ability to perform. And I think we're already seeing that in some of the hedge funds, frankly, where you know these kind of quasi-trading coders are some of the best paid individuals in the organization. Um, you know, uh, so fascinating. So you, you, I guess you, you know, there is is you know you're going to see these organizations build out um trading and marketing capabilities they're going to still need that need for origination and that understanding of the fundamentals but you're going to just see this increasing i think value is probably the the best way of putting it valuing of individuals with digital expertise and especially those individuals who can then translate that into commercial outcomes um for organizations so my question is, I guess, you know, coming close to the end, COVID-19, and we've discussed this, has provided such a, a tremendous impetus to change. I think, you know, it has, we've been through a period where there has been questions, certainly in Western um, economies, about why have we not seen the gains in productivity that we thought we would see as we, you know, have become an online, you know, and digitized society. And it seems like it's caused a real shift uh, um, in terms of flexibility, um, not only just in location, but sort of time and so forth. What do you think will be, very briefly, I know it's a big question, but kind of the lasting impacts on talent that you're seeing from COVID? And do you think the commodities sector um, can capitalize and embrace those those changes and trends? So I think. And you said it, Paul, is the, the flexibility, the flexibility through that digitization of our everyday activities. I think that is something which is just massive and that's not going to go away anymore. And I think as we move to a new normal, we have to think about how can we combine the best out of two worlds, of what we had previously and what we have right now through that accelerated digitization in terms of how can we best balance that? Because the benefit of personal interaction as we had it in the past, and that will not go away, is obviously that it creates much more trust and can also create more creativity. The benefit of the digital interaction as we have it right now is obviously supporting efficiency and speed. And I think we need to find the balance of the two And I think it's also going to be important both for existing talent and for new talent to find kind of a good equilibrium between the two. Because I think we, 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 we cannot, we cannot get to a model where different generations in an organization 
run on completely different models. We need to find a way of continuing to train in within the organizations to exchange, to bring the different thoughts together, but on the other side, also be able to interact with the outside world. Therefore, I think there will be a changing culture. And I think technology will be way more embraced going forward. Um, and that will ultimately also lead to lower cost. But I think it's very important that we do this in a very prudent way. Yeah, I think it is also, maybe perhaps for the trading houses, a, and I completely agree. I think, you know, part of, um, you know, these professional service organizations, which effectively trading houses are, you know, um, it is about that, that um, collaboration and the um, you know, creativity that comes out of that and that kind of informal knowledge sharing that really makes organizations tick. But I think about it that actually I think these organizations are really primed to take advantage of the new working culture because they are so nimble. And maybe, you know, that combined with that as a transition to support the energy transition itself will make them much more attractive to or attractive or continue to be attractive to the next generation of workers. But also perhaps as well, um, another challenge we haven't touched on, but is, is there as well is, you know, that's an opportunity to get more diversity into the business as well. So I think when I look forward to, you know, human capital, there are some real positive opportunities out there to take advantage of that will mean, you know, we're all more productive. And if we can somehow ch fix that uh, or find a solution to the challenge of, enabling collaboration, face-to-face -face creativity with people being able to work around their own schedules, to work around their own processes as well. You know, some people um, you know, find it much easier to concentrate in different environments than others. You know, that's a, a, an opportunity to be more attractive to talent. Well, I agree. I agree, Paul. I think, you know, the interesting thing is, I think, first of all, there will be not, no more one-size-fits-all. I think there will be situations where you will be in the office. There will be situations where you will work from home. But I think the most important thing is, and there will be situations where you go personally somewhere. There will be situations where you dial in or are just on video. And the most important thing around this is this is becoming more normal for us. So there's no more um, stigmatization if somebody doesn't show up or if somebody has to work from home or wants to work from home. And I think what the what the last month has shown for sure is that it actually works very well if you work from home. And, you know, it actually also works very well if you have to disrupt the call sometimes for a minute because maybe your kid is crying or whatever. That even brings us more closer together as human beings. And in the end, it does not stop productivity. Of course, we cannot basically spend all our focus on our personal life and we all want to go out again and we want to come together but what it clearly showed it actually works and i think that's that's good for all of us because it will actually increase work-life sustainability for all of us and it will ultimately serve also the environment because this will also support sustainability if you've already met someone face to face having a video conference is almost as good as because there's already some relationship there. And I think, it, yeah, it certainly brings us all closer together. I think it's brought me closer to my colleagues. I think it's brought us closer to our clients by, you know, effectively having that video conference in your in your office, watching the, the three-year-old, you know, throw a toy truck at the window. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it, it humanizes our, our clients and our customers, um, which I think we alluded to earlier on is something that is going to be vital, you know, for 
these organizations to navigate energy transitions to get closer to their customers. Roland, it's been an absolute pleasure to have this discussion. Um, it's been incredibly insightful. Really appreciate your time. Where can people, I guess, find you and, and your work? Obviously, these days, mainly in front of my computer because I can't travel. <laughs> but otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, you know, I would be around. But um, as, as always, I mean, um, uh, in Oliver Wyman, we are very well reachable. And uh, Paul, I want to thank you very much for inviting me. I hope it's of interest and I look very much forward to continuing the dialogue. Excellent. Yeah, I look forward to, well, hopefully we can meet, um, I doubt it's going to be this year, but uh, certainly in the new year. Excellent. Thanks very much, Paul. Take care. Thank you for listening to the HC Insider podcast. To find out more about HC, go to hcinsider.global, where there's more news and content focused on the commodities markets.